Well, I am blessed and honored to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. But before we begin, even though he's not here, I want to extend a thank you to Pastor Tim for the opportunity and for his leadership. But you know what they say when pastor's away, the staff's at play. So we're going to have a little fun this morning. I'm just kidding. But we're going to study the Word of God together. But we are blessed to have a leader who has traversed the journey that is the ministry for so many years and who continually brings us face-to-face with the Word of God each and every week. So the same God who calls us to the ministry also calls us to rest. So that's where Pastor Tim and Cynthia are. And so it's our job to man the ship while they receive the rest and renewal that they deserve. So let's pray for them and let's pray for this message. Lord, you are great and awesome. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come in this room, that your presence would be made known, and that your word would be made manifest to us so that we could be better followers of Jesus Christ. And two, we ask that you be with Pastor Tim and Cynthia, giving them rest and renewal for their souls so they can continue to be servants of you, glorifying you in each and every way. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So when we step into the Gospels, we step into the story of Christ. The stories that the disciples, that the Holy Spirit thought were the most important for his people to know. And this morning we're going to step into the Gospel of Luke. And before we do that, there's a few things you should know about the Gospel of Luke. Some quick facts, if you will. First, Luke was not an original disciple. He was not a Jew, he was a Gentile, and Luke stands alone in the Gospels. It's unique in the fact that it's the only Gospel in its original form that goes beyond the story of Christ on earth, because Acts is supposed to be butted up against it. It's not like that in your Bible, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Also, it is part of the synoptic Gospels, which is a big fancy word for just the fact that they have similar stories within them. So that's why you see so much overlap. But we're going to dwell in Luke chapter 14 this morning. And let me set the scene for you. So just before where we're about to read, Christ is sitting in a Pharisee's house. He is eating a feast. And ironically, he tells the story about a feast. He tells the story about a feast where The people of God are invited, but they don't come. So the host tells the servants, go out and get as many people to lame, the crippled, bring as many people in to this feast as you can. There's still room. And from there, Luke, without warning, jumps to Christ on the road, traveling with large crowds that perhaps signify the magnitude of those that were invited to this feast, the feast of heaven. And before I read this morning, I'd ask that you just ask yourself this question. Have you paid the cost of following Jesus? The whole cost. So let's read this morning from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now large crowds were traveling with him. And he turned to them and said... Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, 
cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So Christ is on his journey towards Jerusalem when he's saying that. We don't know exactly where he is, but it's just before the cross. And people are traveling with him in these large crowds and wondering, who is this miracle man? Who is this guy that does all these things? Who is this man who teaches with an authority that people have not seen? Who is this man who calls people to do things that are radical? Who is this man? What do we want to learn from him? Is it worth it to follow him? And should we listen to his words just because there are big crowds surrounding him? Should we give him everything that we have? What makes him different from other leaders? How can we be sure he's not a phony? I want to tell you a story about large crowds that followed some other people. There was once a preacher who gathered many crowds. He found a home in the church. He found a community there that he did not find in his own family. He was a farm boy from Indiana. In fact, he only grew up 75 miles away from Marion. People were drawn to his interracial beliefs and his charismatic personality. In fact, his family was the first white family in Indianapolis to adopt a black child. He fought for desegregation. Sounds good so far, right? Right? People were astounded by his preaching, flocked to him for security, drawn to his ability to perform miracles. And lead a movement. People went to him for happiness, fulfillment, though eventually the women he empowered became objects of his sexual gratification. The African Americans he empowered eventually became his slaves. The poor he fed eventually were exploited. They had followed him to the promised land, and 900 of them committed suicide. His name was Jim Jones. There's another man named Vissarion. He's a man in Russia that's not a picture of Jesus, just so you know. Or a man, it is a man posing to be Jesus, but it's not Jesus. Vissarion, which means teacher in Russian, is a man who leads a commune of about 4,000 people who live in a secluded area in Russia, thinking that he is the latest manifestation of Christ. They worship him and regularly listen to his sermons. There are pictures of him on their wall. 
So do large crowds mean that a man is worth following? No. So how can we be so sure that this Jesus man in this passage is worth following? How can we be so sure? How are we supposed to trust in Jesus Christ and his church? How are we sure that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity? Because Jesus Christ, unlike these two men, claimed to be God and backed it up. He died and three days later rose from the grave because people have followed him for thousands of years, putting their lives on the line to protect his writings. And if that is not enough, because Christ responds to us in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of prayer, because we've seen what Jesus Christ can do when someone gives their life to him and allows him to change it. And so that's why we believe that Jesus Christ is the one true teacher, unlike these two men who unfortunately stood on his shoulders for their own gain. Christ, unlike these people, did not come to lift himself up, but to lift us up. And if that radical act of selflessness doesn't set Christ apart from other so-called teachers, I don't know what does. And so while we're there, because obviously this is still relevant with Vissarion that I shared with you, let's talk about how to spot false teaching. (laughs) A little hint might be, if a person points you to himself or herself more than they point you to Christ the one true teacher, there may be something wrong. Just because someone calls themselves a preacher and says Jesus' name every once in a while doesn't mean that they're following the teachings of Christ. So that's a little soapbox. But if they don't point to the one true teacher, there may be something off. Unfortunately, there's another thing that large crowds signify. So large crowds signify that there is not necessarily truth there. But large crowds also signify that maybe not everyone in the crowd is fully devoted. And that's what leads Christ to say the next words that he said that we read. I'm sure that there were those in the crowd who just wanted to glean from this man from whatever they could. Perhaps they thought they could take advantage of him, learn his tricks they thought he had. Maybe they were just along for the ride. Maybe they thought that they could, he could make their life easier. Maybe they were just waiting for him to stumble. But regardless, Christ knew that there were those in this crowd who were not devoted followers of him. They were just along for the ride. And I wonder if it pained him that the very ones he came to save were refusing to adhere to what would save them. And when Christ turned around, because we know that he's on this path, they're traveling, all attention is on Jesus, and he turns around and he's going to say something. And so this little clip from Forrest Gump reminds me of what it might have been like. Anyway, like I was saying, I had a lot of company. My mom always said, you got to put the past behind you before you can move on. And I think that's what my running was all about. 
I had run for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. Just like that, my running days was over. All right, so Christ has a little more than to offer us than Forrest Gump, but there's a lesson to learn there. So Christ is traveling on this road, and they all just stop dead. Quiet, quiet, he's going to say something. And I think the reaction to what he said might have been just like what that guy, what are we supposed to do now? But Christ gives three requirements of his disciples. No ifs, ands, or buts. These are what you must do if you want to follow Christ. Ones we must follow even today. And the first one he says is that Christ must be number one. He specifically says, Whoever does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. What are we supposed to do now? For those of you who are family-oriented, this may sound disconcerting. Lord, did you not say, love your neighbor as yourself? Right? It's up there. Didn't you say that? Don't you uphold the Ten Commandments? What, What are you saying? Although Christ is a little prone to using exaggeration. Uh, though while Christ uses exaggeration, that doesn't mean the fishermen in the room can continue to exaggerate how big their catch was. Um, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> Christ is not using hate in an actively hating way. It's comparative. So when he's saying, hate your family, he's saying, choose this over that. I choose this over that. He's not saying disown your family. Please quit brushing your teeth to hate yourself. He's not saying give away your kids actively to hate them. Quit talking to your parents. Don't go to your brother's birthday party. That's not what he's saying. So let me give you a little example. If I go to the store and I only have one, enough money for one box of cereal, and I'm choosing between Captain Crunch and Fruity Pebbles because what else would you choose between? And I obviously pick Fruity Pebbles because there's no contest. Even though I still like Captain Crunch, in the way that Christ is using the word hate, I'm hating Captain Crunch. It doesn't mean I'm never going to see Captain Crunch again. It doesn't mean I don't love Captain Crunch. It just means I'm choosing for my priority to be Fruity Pebbles. Or... 
If I have to decide where I'm going to be for the weekend, I can only be in one place at once. So if I'm choosing between grandma's house or my aunt's house, I love them both dearly. But when I finally make up my mind and obviously decide to go to grandma's house, because why not? (laughs) I'm hating my aunt in the way that Christ is using the word. Choosing my grandma over my aunt at that time. Does it mean I'm never going to give my aunt another kiss or anything like that? I'm choosing my grandma over that. I'm choosing Christ over the things that surround me. So really, I think a more accurate way of what Christ was saying in that first one would be, if anyone wishes to be my disciple and does not tend to choose me over father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, or even their own life, they can't be my disciple. And while that still proves relevant to today, I think that there's still a little bit of cultural difference in where we are versus they. Because what defined people in this culture was their family. This is a group-oriented culture. There was no such thing as the individual. I didn't look at what defined me. I was just a part of my family unit. unit. So that being said... Even though we are still called to love Christ over our family, I think the question is answered when we ask you, who do you say you are? If you ask someone then who they say they are, well, I'm the son of so-and-so, the grandson of this person, etc. That was what was valuable. If I ask you today, it's something more like what you enjoy, what you do, what you like. Sports team, values, sexuality, clothing brands, beliefs, patriotism, ethnicity, culture. Just think of what you would answer when I ask you, what makes you, you? Maybe someone would say in America, I'm a golfing engineer who likes to dress nice. I'm a Republican with Irish roots and love my family. But the thing is, maybe if Christ were to talk to us today, he would say something more like, If anyone does not choose me first over their beliefs, their values, their family, their friends, or anything else that defines them, then they cannot be my disciple. So I'll ask you this morning, what makes you, you? Is your first answer, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, please hear me. I'm not saying put away your hobbies, put away your family, put away your passions or your beliefs. But you might need to reorder them. What are you choosing before Christ? When someone asks you who you are, what are you more prone to answer before Jesus? Personally, I like theology. I like disc golf. I like being a pastor. I like humor. As Pastor Jim alluded to, (laughs) I'm a little quirky. (laughs) Maybe for you it's cooking, being an American, being a wife, loving education, being a football fan, or something else. What defines you? What if I told you that Christ wasn't calling us to do something different? He was only calling us to be how we were designed to be. Because what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They were designed to have God first, designed to have Christ first, but what they do? 
They put him second and chose to do what they wanted. So Christ is not calling us to do anything radical other than be the way that he wants us to be, to be the way that we're created to be. Christ is calling us back into the garden, back into what humanity is intended to be. And that's having Christ as number one. So I'll tell you this morning, he's not calling us to losing. He's calling us to gaining. So that's requirement number one. Christ must be number one. Requirement number two, carry the cross. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross at this point didn't have Jesus' sacrifice behind it. They had knew nothing of Christ about to die on the cross. But it was the most heinous of punishments at that time. And it signified a burden to be carried, struggle that had to be done. And so Christ is really giving a warning. If you follow me, it's not going to be easy. But you have to follow me if you want to be my follower. You will struggle. You will trip. There will be adversity. So I'll ask you, where are you unwilling to follow Christ? Into a place of pain? Into a place of frustration? Into a place of danger? Into a place of death? It's a journey of the unknown, it truly is, but the destination is a glorious kingdom where the presence of God overflows. So which path would you rather choose, the path you got to forge and the destination was less than ideal or the path that was unknown, but you know that the destination is plentiful? He's not calling us to losing. He's calling us to gaining. And so naturally, Christ gives us two images because we're a little thick-headed and we need illustrations. (laughs) I like illustrations personally, but... First one he gives is that of building a tower. So we have a picture of a tower here. No ignorant person, he says, he doesn't say ignorant, but basically that's what he implies, (laughs) decides they're going to build a tower without first seeing if they have enough money to build a tower. You don't buy a car knowing that you're not going to have enough money to pay for it later and knowing you'll have to get it repoed. It's simple. Simple budgeting 101. Because when you can't finish the tower, when your car does get repoed, you look silly. And you feel bad. And I don't think it's coincidental that Christ uses this illustration Because the Christian walk is much like building a tower. Continually building up closer and closer and closer and closer to God. And he's saying if you don't have it in you, if you don't have the resources, the skill, the know-how, if you don't want to put the time in, don't do it. Please don't follow me if you're not going to follow through. I want someone who's all in who's going to build a tower each and every day, drawing closer to me and my father as much as they can. The other example he gives is a king going to war. 
A king doesn't want to fight a battle he can't win. If the odds are slim and only some supernatural force is going to bring you out on top, you're not going to risk the loss. If you can't believe that you're going to win against circumstances where odds are against you, don't do it. And again, I don't think it's coincidental that the Christian life is a battle where it seems like odds are against you. And there's one king leading the way who will surely have the victory. But he says, if you're not willing to endure the battle, if you're not willing to follow me and take your cross each and every day, don't do it. Please don't do it. If you don't have it in you to build the Christian life in its entirety, or if you don't have it in you to fight the spiritual battle that seems stacked against you, don't do it. Essentially what Christ is communicating in these stories is that before one decides to be his disciples, they need to understand the weight that comes with it, the cost that they will have to pay. The true disciple pays the cost to build a tower and risks himself in the spiritual battle that lies ahead of him, trusting that God will come through. And unlike Vasarion and Jim Jones, Christ is not manipulating you. He's being real. Yes, he wants your full devotion, but what he has to offer is much more worth it. It is the most worth it. The question, though, is not whether or not you have enough or whether you can do it. The question is not whether or not you have budget enough to build the tower. The question is not whether or not you can win the battle. It's whether or not you have believed in the Lord that he'll win the battle and bring you through it. It's whether or not you're willing to sacrifice everything to build the tower. The question isn't whether or not it'll be worth it. The question is whether or not you're willing to sacrifice now to take hold of paradise with the one true teacher, the one true God. He's not calling you to losing. He's calling you to gaining. The Christian life, as I said before, is one of building up, continually seeking to be mature in Christ. It's one of battle, continually relying on God in unideal and adverse circumstances. And so maybe you're not a follower of Christ and you're listening to this and wondering if maybe it'll cost you too much commitment, too much adversity in following Christ. I assure you it will cost you, but it'll be the best investment, the best risk, if you want to call it that that you've ever taken. Or maybe you're sitting in this room and you followed Christ, you've begun to build the tower, you started to fight the battle, but things have distracted you. Something else has become your top priority. Kids, passions, careers, what is it? You've been unable to put Christ as first and foremost in your life. You've been unable to bear the cross that Jesus wanted you to bear, to go where he wanted you to go. Maybe it was into a different job. Maybe it was a different location, a different mindset, facing an unresolved issue. Do you have an almost tower? Are you an almost Christian? Do you have adversity in your life that you're unwilling to trust in the Lord to come through on? 
Are you an untrusting Christian? I assure you, he's not calling us to losing. He's calling us to gaining. And so Christ sums it up, giving the third requirement of a disciple. And really, it's just the summary. Whoever wants to follow me needs to give up all their possessions. We know that it sums it up because he says, therefore. So what are our possessions? Who we define ourselves as? Our plans? What we want to do each and every day? All that we are? Everything you can imagine? Even the things you have to? But it's more than that. And after Christ had said that, I'm sure there was someone in the crowd that said something akin to, what are we supposed to do now? I wish that everyone would have stayed and been a full devoted follower of Christ. The reality is that some probably stayed who were still unwilling to do that. The reality is that there are those in this room who are unwilling to give it all to Christ, just like there were those in the crowd. The irony is that in keeping all our possessions and keeping something not surrendered to Christ, we actually end up losing. He's not calling us to losing. He's calling us to gaining. You're either building a tower or you're not. You're either fighting the battle or you're not. Being a tower-building, battle-fighting follower of Christ is costly. Though the cost in you is ready to be paid. But you may need to let some things go. And I want to clarify here, it's not what you do that gets you into heaven. It's not your surrender that gets you into heaven. It's the blood of Christ. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that does that. But if you want all of you redeemed, he needs to have all of you. And that requires an action on your part. That requires surrender. The grace of God is a mystery. We're undeserving of it, and yet God grants it to us. But yes, it, yet it costs both us and him something. Paul understood that. That nothing was more valuable than Christ. The things we're tossing away are truly worthless in comparison to what we are gaining. In Philippians 3.8, he says this, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He is the most valuable thing in this universe. And you're not losing anything worth anything by putting him as number one. But nonetheless, it's a costly grace if you want to be in the grace of God. Because as I said, it requires all of you. And I think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, says it well in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. So I want to read you an excerpt of that. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ 
for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Scripture says you were bought at a price. And what has God cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So yes, it does cost you something. But it's worthless in the comparison of what you're gaining. You have nothing to claim in your salvation other than the fact that you surrender. So what's keeping you from following him today to your fullest extent? What sin is causing you to stumble? Let him have it. What passion is in your way of him being your greatest passion? Put it after him. Discipleship is hard and costly, but it's worth every single penny. (laughs) It will be the greatest investment of your life. He's not calling us to losing. He's calling us to gaining. And he'll be with you every step of the way, showing us what way to go and empowering us with his Holy Spirit. So, disciples, what are you holding back from Christ today? What have you not surrendered to him? Family, friends, passions, free time, secret sin, your career, money, plans, possessions. What is it? What's standing between you and following Christ, being a true disciple of Christ? I bid you to let it go. And I promise you that in return you will gain more than you can ever imagine. He assures that. So I'm going to enter into a time of prayer and I just ask that whatever you can identify in your heart that's between you and being a deeper follower of Christ, that you give it to him. And then I'll close us in prayer. And we'll go home. Lord, Though it is costly to follow you, we don't even deserve to have the chance. So we 
thank you for that opportunity. And we just ask that you would show us and reveal to us what holds us from being truly devoted followers of you. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts and empower us by your sanctifying power to move forward and be more Christ-like, to be better followers, to be better disciples. Help us to surrender today and to show your glory to the other people. <laughs> In the precious name of Jesus, who we don't deserve, we pray. Amen. Leave this place today knowing that if you surrender all to him, there's nothing to fear. Truly, he is better than anything.